Ethan, did you get a lot of snow at your house? Uh, yep, a little bit. I'm just enjoying my day off, getting all that makeup work done from Harvard. Couldn't be better. So good. I, I love a good snow day. I mean, this one came at the exact right time. I know, I've been exhausted all week, ever since we got back. <laughs> yeah, same. And we only get one good snow a year, and I was really hoping that they would cancel today. So when I saw the two-hour delay for the first part, I was very disappointed. <laughs> Mrs. Herring and I were both very upset about that, but then... Then it came through about, what, 5.30, 6 a.m.? Never mind, yeah. school's canceled. That's perfect. All right, well, let's get into it. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? Ethan and I are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions of the world of high school debate. And it seems like it's been forever since we've done a new resolution. I mean, we, we have yeah. done nuclear weapons for what? I think we started prepping it back in December, and then this is the first time we've really gone to a tournaments throughout both months of an LD cycle. So we've yeah. had three months on this thing. I am so ready to be done with LD, or at least not done with LD, but done with nuclear weapons. Yep, I am so done with the nuclear weapons. There's another tournament this weekend. I was like, you know what? No, I'll just wait till March. We have a different topic, different resolution. Yep. Yeah, I'm done with nukes. Yeah, I'm judging at that tournament tomorrow if that tournament happens, and I'm I put myself down for LD. So we'll we'll see. Oh man, you're not even done yet, then. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. But okay, uh, so we're we're on to the March and April resolution. Ethan, what's the res? How about you read it off? Because I don't have it in front of me. Oh sure. Okay. Predictive. Uh, oh my goodness, that was terrible. Predictive policing is unjust. Okay. Simple enough. I, I hope like that so. a lot better than the what was it the SAT ACT one? I oh, hate man. long resolutions. Uh, this one's like this one's short. It's simple. Predictive uh, policing is unjust. Okay. All right. So initial thoughts. What do you got? Um, well, this is. I think this is going to make for a great value structures debate, um, and it's it's a little bit different than the nukes one i would say because the nukes debate always came down to morality and utilitarianism and you really couldn't get out of that but with the word unjust in the resolution i think we're going to have at least a little bit more fun with values even though it still is a kind of policy-esque resolution it is i mean we're still and as as always with these we're we're not just imagining a philosophy debate that is separated from the real world it's a it's a major concern about whether or not should we use the potential of technology to create a better world uh, AF is going to be saying no here, and NEG is going to be saying yes, we should definitely use the predictive policing uh, possibilities to have a greater accuracy in our justice system. But then, of course, we're going to get all kinds of other issues about what happens when you remove the human element and you replace the human element with a mathematical algorithm. Is that beneficial or do we lose something really, really priceless in that in that exchange? Yeah, I've done some very preliminary research on this resolution already, and there are a lot of different interesting avenues that I think people could take with arguments. So I don't have the resolution right in front of me, so I'm glad you had it. But I do have some interesting sources that I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about for this episode. Well, why don't you run us through some of those? I'll jump in as, as needed, and uh, then we'll, we'll go from there. 
Okay, so we'll do a little bit of background information on the resolution. There's this article from the RAND Corporation that's just really good at summarizing what exactly predictive policing is and the different steps that are involved in the process. So that's just a good, I would say, summary article to read over if you have no idea what predictive policing is. Um, there's Predictive policing is basically the act of using technology to predict when crimes are going to happen, where they're going to happen, different things like that. Um, the biggest predictive policing software is provided by a company called Predpol. That's P-R-E-D-P-O-L. It's a private company, and it was first used on the streets of um, Los Angeles, California. And the this system relies, or at least Predpol's specific system, they just partnered with Caliber, which is another firm, by the way, only uses three data points for predictive policing. That's crime type, location, and the date and time that the crime happened. But we'll get more into the Predpol's specifics later. The basics of predict predictive policing is that you take massive amounts of data and put it together and try to use the correlations and within that data to find out where crimes are going to happen, when they're going to happen, and the nature of those crimes. This can be um, more abstract, like where in general, like what radius would we expect a high crime concentration to be in, or predictive policing measures have gotten so advanced that we can even predict what individuals are likely or at-risk individuals or at-risk people, who do we need to keep an eye on, and that's where things tend to get more controversial. Definitely so. I, know, I, I think I, I think I was reading the same article you're describing, but it talked about how some police departments that use this kind of technology then they use the prediction to determine which neighborhoods they police and where they spend their time. Some places even go so far as to go ahead and draw up lists of those at-risk people. And uh, the, the, the argument, I, I don't know, I, I wasn't able to find any examples of when this has actually been done so far. But the argument, at least, was that you could then preemptively contact these people and say, hey, either you are on the risk to be hit by a criminal or you are on the risk to commit a crime and, and address that before it happens. And of course, we hit the immediate problem of accusations of racial profiling and stereotyping and general racism in, in practice. And I feel like that's the big elephant in the room. I can see tons of um, tons of opportunity for um, I, I guess you could even say affirmative case in this debate. But the thing is, is that the race argument is completely topical. So I don't know if that's the that's the people who voted on the resolution trying to eliminate some sort of progressive argumentation there. Um, but the fact that they put unjust on the affirmative side makes it so that the negative side isn't going to run a K for anything related to justice. Um, and the affirmative in arguing for injustice is going to be arguing topically. So I think that's a really good move by whoever made the resolution. Um, and there's just two main things to keep in mind while we do this episode, too, is that predictive policing is only successful or is only as good as the data that is based off of. So it's important to look at where this data came from, how much of the data we have, because in smaller areas, if you have less data, that's going to skew results because you don't have as much precedence to base your conclusions off of. But if you live in a larger area or predictive policing rather is used in a larger area, you might have data over longer periods of time under longer periods of transition that would make it better. And also the thing about predictive policing is that it's difficult to attribute success to it because a, the nature of predictive policing is to deter crime as well as um, predict, I guess, when the crime is going to happen for a for lack of a better word. And it's difficult to attribute success to something if it deterred it, because you're not. there's no way to establish a really solid causal connection there. So you need to look at a lot of correlatory factors, um, which can make it difficult to build a case for predictive policing. But I would say that there's a strong case to be made regardless. So a couple things there. Uh, 
first, it may just be worth noting that that study was focusing on, or you mentioned that the, the this first was applied in Los Angeles, which Los is one, Angeles. Of, one of the largest cities in the United States. So we are talking about a city there that could have millions of data points to feed into the system and could be bringing together hundreds of, and I, I don't know how many police precincts there are in Los Angeles, uh, surely not more than a thousand, but several hundred police precincts all contributing data on a daily basis. But that's way different than your average town or city in the United States. So if you're talking, even if you go to, I don't know, somewhere like Nashville, Tennessee, it's a huge city for the state of Tennessee, but they're not going to have nearly as much data as Los Angeles. Or if you go a little further uh, over towards the border and you go to Johnson City, well, now we're dealing with just kind of a regional city. Or if we bring it more close to home, Raleigh's not going to have nearly as much information as Los Angeles. So Predictive policing then may be only really effective if in a place where it has that much data. Yeah, and it's important to note that predictive policing has been around for a while. It's not like this this practice is completely new. Sure, you have companies like Caliber and Predpol, you know, uniting and making the software more complicated so that it can it hopefully predict more where more crimes are going to happen. But the Rand Corporation found that predictive policing and contemporary policing are used in almost a one-to-one ratio so that these things go hand in hand. And the, the idea with predictive policing is that you're not only aiming to predict the crime, but then there's measures that you take afterwards to hopefully deter the crime and if not be there when it happens. Well, a couple other things that we should at least mention there. Um, Ethan, do you see the obvious, uh, kind of the obvious racism argument here? I have so many stats ready for that. Yes. Okay. That here, the obvious reason here at least is my my take on that, and then jump in with stats here in just a second. Let's do it. I I would assume that if 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 I was watching my city and then noticed that wow, an awful lot of crime happens in this area. Well, a police station then uses predictive policing. All of the data suggests wow, crime is tends to happen in these four neighborhoods. Well, suddenly police officers spend a lot more time in those four neighborhoods and they do make arrests out of and they're they're there. They witness things and they they arrest folks and those folks are prosecuted and so on. Well, the racism argument, I think, comes in when someone goes through and analyzes those neighborhoods and say, wow, the neighborhoods you decide that predictive policing sent you to are ethnic and minority neighborhoods. And because police are there, they are arresting people in greater numbers who are from ethnic and minority backgrounds. They're ignoring people who are in wealthy white neighborhoods because instead they're in black and Hispanic neighborhoods. And so while you could look at it objectively and say that's where the data is generated, it's also influenced by where are police officers patrolling and who are they arresting because they're there to witness things. If they were in other places, would they witness other crime in different parts of the city? What's your take on that? Yeah, so I think one, one interesting thing to note to kind of jump into that is that you don't want to be caught, especially in today's political environment, it's, it's, it's looked down upon to be caught advocating for procedures like stop and frisk, which is where this data is collected and then eventually put into the system. Um, you know, like, like Mike Bloomberg is actually apologizing. This is one of the big things um, during the Democratic debate, or not debate, but just like his run in general. He's apologizing for having advocated for predictive, poli- or not predictive policing, stop and frisk. Um, and then eventually when de Blasio was elected, 
he took measures to reduce the amount of stop and frisk in New York City. And there's some interesting statistics around that as well. But the main thing to keep in mind is that the conclusions that predictive policing and these algorithms come up with is only as good as the data that goes into the system. You can have a system as simple as Microsoft Word. It's not like this is some complicated or it has to be some complicated algorithm. Some some police offices will literally use something as simple as Microsoft Word. I looked at it in the Rand Corporation um, packet, I guess you could call it, where you may have a really complicated or large city with a lot of complicated statistics and need more systems like um, the the bigger companies like Caliber or Predpol to comp- compute your numbers, or you could just make a word doc. It's literally the the science of putting data together for probability for probability's sake. Um, but the so keeping in mind that the conclusion is only as good as the data. One key place to look is stop and frisk procedures, because that's where a lot of the data is collected. And New York has had a lot of interesting things surrounding stop and frisk. There were five, about 5 million stops from 2002 to 2013. That's when Bloomberg was um, in office. And the vast majority were black and Latino, which is another thing to keep in mind. Um, and under Bloomberg, stop and frisk increased sevenfold during his entire term. So he was a major advocate for stop and frisk. And now he's um, taking that back as he runs for president. Uh, and in 2009, Latinos were nine times as likely to be stopped than white people. Mm. So there's a couple, there's, take that for what you will, just lay that out on the table. Um, only 14 out of every 10,000 stops conducted during the Bloomberg era, as the New York Times called it, turned up a gun, and just 1,200 out of every 10,000 ended with a fine, um, an arrest, or the seizure of an illegal weapon, according to police data. Um and during Mayor de Blasio's first term as mayor, stops decreased by 76% to about 11.6 thousand in 2017 um, from about 45.7 thousand in his first year. But at the same time, crime fell to levels not seen since the 1950s. So it's interesting that even with seeing a drop in stop and, fr- stop and frisk procedures, we can see that crime is still going down, even though we're having police stop less people. So that, that questions, I guess you could say, the integrity of stop and frisk as a procedure. Um, but another thing with the data is if you're collecting all of this data with stop and frisk, keep in mind, this was first implemented in Los Angeles and all of these statistics line up with that time frame. It's difficult to pin down. If we have predictive policing, are they based on those faulty measures of stop and frisk in the first place? And is that where racism can leak into the system and predict, you know, maybe this person or this individual is a more at risk, quote unquote, individual than anybody else? But that's what companies are trying to solve for. That's why Predpol specifically puts on their website, we look at the location, not the individual. We have no statistics on individuals. The three, the three points are crime type, location, and date time. So we have people trying to solve for these problems at the same time. Well, that's all very interesting. Uh, let's, let's circle back to New York for just a moment, because I know part of that whole story about New York City and uh, stop and frisk and New York City policing has to do with just how bad the New York crime rates were in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, to speak very generally, I've, I've heard other I'm, I'm not old enough to have rem- to remember any of this. Uh, but I mean, there are uh, Times Square today is like a family friendly uh, ad heavy place. It used to be filled with triple um, X theaters and prostitutes and drug dealers on every corner. And it's been massively cleaned up. So I wonder, I'd be curious about those stop and frisk numbers and the efficacy of that, because I wonder if the stop and if stop and frisk is effective over a long period of time. And then if in looking at the years after that, if it's sort of like a some sort of inertia of kind of keeping crime down because people know that there's an increased police presence there somehow. Yeah, that's another thing is that the the intention of companies like Predpol is to know 
where and when to place police officers. So they actually have a system built into the software, which helps assemble missions so that police officers know where to check on, which also makes it really difficult to know if the PredPol has actually stopped any crimes or prevented any crimes. Um, there's a quote from their actual website. It says, PredPol is the only pol- predicted policing company with a proven track record of crime prevention and reduction. In controlled blind studies, crime and analysts using PredPol were 100% more effective, predicting twice as many crimes as analysts using only hotspot mapping and intelligence models. Obviously, this is only based off of correlation, because if you tell, if you tell a police officer, officer to show up and then there's criminals there about to do something, then and they end up not doing it, you're never going to know that they were going to do it in the first place. So you can't draw a, cor- a causation there. But it's it's a completely viable argument. I just don't know how much that's going to fly in a debate. Yeah, it's interesting. And it certainly does involve turning an awful lot of judgment over to a private company. Uh, and that, too, is going to – I suspect that would come into this debate as well because you've got such a difference between a – Public funded police op- or police force that is connected to that particular community and traditionally at least lives in that particular community. I know years ago I was talking to a uh, the, the parent at Thales who is uh, who was on the local police force and he was required by his job to own a house in the city that he was a policeman in. Um, But to kind of hand an awful lot, even the missions you were describing, to hand the missions that a police force does over to PredPol, it kind of sends me running down worst case scenarios, technocracy, kind of dystopian dreams, which aren't really founded, but it seems like it's plausible. It's plausible. I'm not sure if this is like a requirement like, here, we're going to schedule your entire day. But I guess it could provide a list of general, quote unquote, hot spots that need to be paid attention to. Um, and I think the, a big heart of this debate is going to be, it's not just going to be about stop and frisk, obviously. Um, but that it's a good place to look if you're looking for trends in data and how the data was collected over time. If, if there's certain factors that would lead to racism and then all that data is put into the system, but then you also have to deal with the fact that the company doesn't necessarily look at the individual or at least PredPol. So if you can find another one that police or police, um, offices are using to um, to track these things and predict these things that could possibly be open to racism, then that could be a more viable argument. But it's important to remember that the Terry v. Ohio um, Supreme Court conclusion in 1968 ruled that stop and frisk is legal and it's okay to do. So now because of that Supreme Court ruling, all we have is cities trying to limit the amount of stop and frisk frisk that we have over time. But um, even with stop and frisk being lowered and we're having less people being stopped on the street, New York is seeing drops in numbers. Crime is still at the lowest it it ever was. All of which make for great pragmatic arguments that stop and frisk and predictive policing may be very effective. Uh, Let's shift to the other part of our resolutions. I think we've got plenty. We've given a pretty good picture of what predictive policing is and what it can do. Uh, what, what do you make of the, the question of justice and predictive policing? Hmm. That's a, that's a major shift. You've got me thinking now. Um, so the, state the, the resolution of predictive policing is unjust. Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting framing. Is because if, if the word unjust were not there, I think Neg would have it all the way. Because like I think there's so much evidence that is completely practical. This is like this resolution is forcing you into a values debate. Hopefully. You can't escape it. Like you, if you're neg, you're going to have to define justice as society as a whole because you're doing society and injustice by removing this obvious help to security. By the evidence that I'm seeing, 
I don't think we could operate in a world without predictive policing. If it's used in a one-to-one ratio with contemporary policing, we use it just as much as any other method. So throwing away that essential tool may not, may not be, well, it would be impractical, even if it's more just. So putting the word just in the resolution is putting some interesting boundaries around what people well, can debate let about. Me, let me complicate this for you just a moment. Then uh, I'm, I'm, uh, you, you had the data there. I'll, I'll take the philosophy side uh, on this one. So if we're going to start with in this resolution, it forces us to figure out what exactly is justice in police work. And that's going to force arguments to fall into one of two camps. Uh, and this is probably something that debaters need to have decided before they even begin drafting their, their cases. So on the one hand, does justice require that people who commit crimes are in fact punished? In which case, you are affirming the traditional justice system, whereby if you steal, the police are are entrusted with the authority to exercise lethal force to catch you. You have a right to a trial by jury of your peers. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to representation, all these things. But eventually, if you did in fact steal and the court finds you guilty, you're sentenced to whatever the court says you're sentenced to. And that's just. In which case, predictive policing, if predictive policing helps accurately do that, then it is in fact a just measure. It could be exactly what you're describing. It's just another tool and the disposal of a police force. On the other hand, if you fit the kind of perspective that I think 90% of the debaters I ran into at Harvard would would hate everything I just said, um, because Mm -hmm. they at least operate from the assertion that the prison and the court system are inherently biased. And they are examples of structural racism, structural bias in the midst of the United States. They look, this kind of perspective would look at the racial imbalance in prisons and the prison system and say, not that uh, people who are black and Latino tend to commit more crimes than people who are white and therefore are punished more than people who are white. They would say, no, that's indicative of inherent bias in people, in which case, If you're on that bit, your kind of gut level thought would be that the prison and court system as they currently stand are inherently biased and predictive policing is only encouraging an existing injustice. And it's just by forwarding the system as it stands, we are only really bringing greater injustice into the world. So I think the question of justice here is key, and it really depends a lot on what you think the role of the police force actually is in society. Does, does the police force have to do with maintaining the common good? Do they have to do, do they have the interest of the individual, of the group as a whole? Like, where does all that fit? It's like the affirmative almost has to run justice because you're affirming a value in the resolution. So I can't see an affirmative case without the value justice, even though I'm sure when I go to competition, I'm going to see it somewhere. Um, but it seems like the affirmative is going to be arguing that it's unjust. So the value is going to be preserving justice or perpetuating justice somehow. But you, the negative could look at it as perfectly just because it's just for society as a whole. So this would be affirmative, I guess, could be more of an individual justice and negative could be more of a societal justice. And I can see an argument, a great argument on both sides for both of those. I'm really pleased with this resolution overall. I think it's awesome. Um, and we're going to have an amazing values debate over this whole thing. But that approach that you were talking about with the affirmative, the affirmative side reminds me of the LD drugs resolution we had for our fourth episode. Um, one of the first, what's the res for, I guess, first four What's the Res episodes we ever had. Way back We were looking at statistics, yeah, of who exactly is committing the most crimes. Mm -hmm. And we looked at prisons uh, specifically because drugs right now are illegal 
um, or most drugs are illegal and then marijuana is being legalized in other places. So it's not really considered a drug. We'll see it legalized pretty universally soon, I think. But we were seeing how, you know, like cocaine and heroin usage was mostly or the the racial demographic for that usage was uh, Hispanic and Latino people were the most mostly in prison. Now, structurally speaking, that because that could be because police officers aren't looking in white neighborhoods or white areas where, you know, like those like cocaine parties in New York you were talking about. Right. Um, uh, Wall, their yeah, police don't really break Street. into like a Wall Street bankers coke fest, but they do yeah. bust down. Uh, they do track uh, young people in the hood kind of thing. Yeah. So I'm still I'm willing to objectively make the statement that more Hispanic people are arrested for doing drugs than white people are for the, the reason for that. No idea. We could just not be looking in the right areas. Hispanic people could just be using drugs more than white people are. I and I don't think anybody's going to feel safe getting up on the stand in the middle of a debate and saying that different races commit crimes at different ratios without having some sort of structural bias behind that. Oh. And if I think that if someone's unwilling to. I just don't think the willingness to make that argument is there because it's I, difficult to test the truth behind that argument, not to be confused with true testing the resolution. Just don't do it. We'll but, save that for um, our next episode. <laughs> yeah. I was supposed to leave that for a while from now. Yeah. yeah we'll, we'll talk about that in the next episode, yeah. but that's my take on it. Well, I, that's interesting. That reminds me, have we talked about a guy named Charles Murray before? Not, no, okay. I don't believe so. Let me, let me get the title of his book real quick. Um, Charles Murray is a, a an American, uh, I want to say sociologist or social scientist at the very least. He wrote a, uh, his famous book. Oh goodness. That's not his famous book. He wrote, he's written several books. Um, and I'm, oh, that's it. Uh, he wrote a controversial book called The Bell Curve in 1994, and it has basically gotten him blackballed from academia. Uh, but this book, he makes the argument, he, he looks at, he, he basically makes the argument that some races are more intelligent than others. And he has an awful lot of statistical data to prove that. Um, but the argument is itself rather heinous and reminds people of some of the arguments that Nazi scientists made about the Nazi, about Germans. And that, that anyway, all that to say, uh, he's the last person I know of in kind of the public realm to make that sort of a race-based argument. And it did not go very well for him. Um, but I think there could be an, an, an that's going to come into this debate somewhere, not in terms necessarily of arguing that one race is inherently forced to commit crimes or anything like that. But both sides are going to have to deal with the fact that people are uh, stopped, frisked, imprisoned, tried and convicted in different racial proportions. And those are those are very different things. That's going to definitely yeah, come in it's here. Gonna get, it's going to get convoluted. There's going to be a lot of literature involved. There's going to be a decent amount of policy involved. Um, so excited for this resolution. And I think don't, this is not 100% similar, but there was an, an LD resolution or an LD debate that I watched like an on for nationals on YouTube that had a similar thing about assimilating all of people's data in a database um, and whether that was just or not, I don't remember the exact resolution. I'm sure someone listening to this episode remembers what I'm talking about. But I, I've watched that debate on YouTube so many times, and it was a really fun one to watch. And and I know the affirmative stuck to justice um, a, like really hard. We saw great philosophical debate even at the top national level. Okay. Uh, and it's, it's leaving so much room open for good values clash. 
Well, that's going to be all over here. One, uh, I'm going to make one suggestion for a uh, place people might go to read for this one, and uh, then we'll probably wrap this episode up. Because okay. I, I think we'll both do a lot more reading on this one over the next two or three weeks and probably back with a, a follow-up episode. But yep. Uh, the the one philosopher that came to my mind for this one is a French postmodernist named Michel Foucault. Uh, he is a fascinating thinker. Uh, I, I I like him a lot. Uh, well, I, I say that I, I I did like him a lot. I, I've since become less enthused about him, but he's very difficult to read. His his prose is a tangled mess in French, and translating into English doesn't help at all. But the one book that I'm thinking of in particular is called Discipline and Punish, The Birth of the Prison, where Foucault makes a couple of really interesting arguments in this book that are germane to this resolution. He argues that uh, the prison is a uh, the prison as it stands today is a unique development of modernity where instead of killing prisoners, which is what people have done time out of mind, beginning in the 17th century and going up through the 20th century, we're much more hesitant to actually kill criminals. Instead, we imprison them. And uh, he has a really he has two really interesting sections. One, he argues about the reason that people are imprisoned is because society is using the punishing the body to shape the soul into a way that will somehow be uh, rehabilitated to be a positive member of society. But what will really come into this debate in particular is Foucault's argument about something he calls the panopticon. Uh, and it's, it's, he talks about it simultaneously as a physical building, but then secondly as an idea. In terms of the building, the panopticon is the tower and the center of a prison yard that it's combining two words, pan, all, optic for the eye. It's the, all see, it's the position that the guards can see all the prisoners from. And that vision, that, sur- that constant surveillance is also part of building, uh, of, of shaping the prisoners. He then goes on to argue that we live in a society, he wrote this book in the 1980s, I believe, and I think his argument's only gotten more true now, We live in a society where we are constantly being monitored and watched and surveilled. Now, he's doing this before there are traffic cameras everywhere and before everyone uh, watching an event will film it and post to IGTV or their YouTube account. Uh, He's doing this before all of this, and he argues that just the very act of being surveilled is itself a form of power and pressure on you from the one who is surveilling you. In the sort of sense that no matter what you do, someone is watching. So are you willing to do that? I think that could be very interesting to kind of explore as a philosophical basis. Is it in fact just for the, a, for the police force to surveil you so that they can catch you later rather than actually waiting to see if you really do the crime and then punish you, but this is sort of a preemptive mechanism to, uh, almost in the same sense that, uh, China is using the, um, social credit score to coerce. We need to make an episode about that. (laughs) We really should. Yeah. We need Mr. Bonnet or something for that. Uh, we should, we should get him on there. Uh, so I think, uh, uh, I'll read one quote from Foucault. Uh, this is, I'm reading from page 197 in, uh, discipline and punish. Uh, here's how he puts it. 
The enclosed segmented space observed at every point in which the individuals are inserted in a fixed place, in which the slightest movements are supervised, in which all events are recorded, in which an uninterrupted work of writing links the center and the periphery, in which power is exercised without division, according to a continuous hierarchical figure, in which each individual is constantly located, examined, and distributed among the living beings, the sick and the dead. All this constitutes a compact model of the disciplinary mechanism. What he's describing there is the constant being watched and the effect that that has of all the people who are doing the watching imposing power on the one who is watched. So I have a very little bit of libertarianness left in me. It's, it, it keeps dying, but it also I, I get irritated by bad government. So I think there could be a great affirmative case that is rooted in the idea that the kind of data that has to be gathered for predictive policing to work is itself a violation of the basic rights of the individual. That rather than, and that predictive policing may very well violate the constitutional assumption of innocence until proven guilty. Uh, so by very the very act of predicting predictive policing assumes there's going to be something guilty. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to think about that framework of justice that you uh, talked about earlier, where justice is talking about how an individual that has committed a crime must be punished. Um, the affirmative doesn't fall out of that purview because you're still punishing individuals just after they've done the crime, and you're limiting um, predictive policing insofar as it tries to predict the crime. So you're kind of just sitting and waiting for it to happen. But at the same time, under the negative side, are you doing an injustice to society by turning a blind eye until something bad happens? Um, and when you're you're limiting yourself as a society and as a government, you're limiting your capacity to keep your citizens, I guess, safe. Um, could that could there be a case made for a lack of justice towards society? We're intentionally limiting ourselves until something harmful happens for the purpose of preserving the rights of an individual. I think there's a great case on that to be made for that. Could be. And I'd honestly, I'd love to see somebody go, I'd love to see an aft that holds to justice and a neg that holds to safety as the highest value. And both of them uphold that. And I'd, I'd be, that'd be so much fun. Um, I think they're, I think we're both going to have justice as the value. I think both teams are going to have the same value. I, I don't see how negative could I mean, I'm sure people will run different. Oh, well, I mean, they'll they'll run. What I mean is that in the sense of like upholding, which is truly the highest, the greatest value and where Neg would. uh, Yeah, where Neg would say we need predictive policing because it increases safety. And AF says, no, we predictive policing shouldn't be here because it's unjust. And the fact that it's unjust is more important than safety and actually have the true clash there. Sorry, but you're probably it's right. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because it's it's framed in the resolution. Predictive policing is unjust. The negative's burden is to say it is no, it is just or like, no, the affirmative is wrong. Because Remember, the debate is never about the topic. It's about the affirmative. And because the debate is about the affirmative, look, you can't, you could shake your head. I learned this at Harvard. I'll talk about it in the episode all you want. There's but, so many things we learned at Harvard that are not great, like including the two, two cases of cheating that have since come out. Okay. Like, Regard, regardless. <laughs> Wait, what? Okay. Later, later. Tune in to um, our episode on Harvard, ladies and gentlemen, to find out about, uh, yes. turns out if you go to Harvard, don't be surprised when there is cheating involving scores and, uh, you run into lots of progressive leftist arguments and right, people I, who only want to win. I did not know about the cheating. Um, but g- hear me out on this, on this claim. I think 
negative i think both sides have to run justice and i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing just because there aren't two completely clashing worldviews doesn't mean because it's now it's great we have a metric that we can um that we can judge by and both teams are going to have to come to I guess, to bear different definitions of what justice is. We're concerned about individual justice or societal justice. That's where the amazing clash of the, the debate's going to be. I think negative has a great argument for societal justice. Affirmative has a great argument for individual rights and individual justice. Um, but I love how this resolution is pushing us to argue for whether or not something is just. It doesn't matter if it keeps, it keeps us safer. Um, how exactly can we serve the best justice to society and the best justice to the individual as a whole? So that makes it, if the word unjust were not in that resolution, I mean, negative would have it all the way. Negative would completely win this debate. That word unjust is in there for the affirmative side. And I think the affirmative needs to take advantage of it because of that. Well, I think it's gonna be really interesting to see how this one comes out. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for another episode of What's the Res? We hope this episode is a help to you. Uh, Ethan, how can people get in touch with us if they want to give us feedback about this episode? If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at whatstherez at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. Follow our Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at whatstherez underscore. Or you can check out our website. That's www.whatstherez.com. We post all of our episodes there, all of our links to social media, some articles, everything that you need. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. Baloney, please.